If you missed last week, Nathan preached on the Ten Commandments, God giving His people the law, and God making a covenant with His people. Different than the Abrahamic covenant, and not replacing the covenant to Abraham, but as a fulfillment and extension of the Abrahamic covenant, God said He would make a great nation from Abraham and Israel to be that nation. And we saw God deliver them out of slavery from Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness. And He makes a covenant with them in the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. A suzerain being a benevolent, powerful um, uh, nation or nation-state or leader, and the vassal being under the protection of the suzerain. There's nothing really the vassal can do to overthrow the suzerain, and so he realizes he must ask for mercy and hope for the blessing from the suzerain. And the suzerain offers protection and guidance and hopefully benevolence blessing for obeying the suzerain. And that becomes a picture of our relationship with Christ. We've been talking about how everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament and our relationship with Christ. Is God not our suzerain? Isn't that a picture of our relationship with Him? He's the all-powerful. He's the one we need protection. Uh, He'll offer protection for us, namely from our own sin. And He gives... Uh, us a covenant, and he gives us laws that we are to keep. And his laws are good, and they're meant for our own good and for our own blessing. So Nathan covered the Ten Commandments, but then he jumped forward to the story of the golden calf to show immediately that the people of God uh, are idolaters at heart. So I want to get us back to that passage and talk about that passage a little bit more, a very important passage in the Bible. And then I want us to consider how we ought to think about the law of Moses, how Christians ought to think about the law of Moses. Does it pertain to us today? If so, what parts? There's certainly laws in Exodus and Leviticus that we read and say, wow, what do I do with that? Um... And if we're honest with ourselves, there's laws we read that make us very uncomfortable, almost to the point where we have trouble defending God's character and the inerrancy of Scripture. Knowing that, that is where Satan will attack our faith. Satan will attack our faith over our confidence in the law of God. And when I hear people mock God and mock our faith, they often go straight to Exodus and Leviticus, look at some of the ceremonial laws and some of the dietary laws and even some of the punishments for breaking the laws and say, really, this is your Bible, this is your God. And too often Christians are left uh, speechless. I know I'm supposed to love the law of God, but I really don't know what to do with that verse. Honestly, when I read through my Bible, I kind of gloss over Leviticus. And it should not be. And so I want to help arm you today, and we'll, we'll go into next week too, because this topic is that important. It's going to take a couple Sundays. When Moses is up on the mountain and he gets the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are then followed by a series of laws. In Exodus 21, we get some laws concerning servants, violence, and animals. In Exodus 22, some property laws and other assorted laws. And by assorted, I mean uh, often it's hard to find a connection between this law and the next. Exodus 23, there's various laws concerning justice, and then it moves into some Sabbath laws and annual feasts. And at that point in Exodus 24, we have the scene where Moses is with the elders of Israel, and they agree to the terms of the covenant. 
Now, before Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments, Nathan showed us that the people gathered at the base of Mount Sinai and agreed with one voice, we will obey the laws of God, before they even have all the laws. Now they come and they get the laws and they, they ratify the treaty and again agreeing, we will keep the laws of God. In Exodus 25 to 31, we get more laws. God explains to Moses exactly how he wants to be approached. And it is God's right and as sovereign to determine how we approach him. We don't get to determine on our own how we want to approach a holy God. And look at that, chapter 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31 all those chapters about how to build the tabernacle, what will it look like to the exact uh, dimensions and the materials and what will be in the tabernacle and what the priests will wear and what they will do and say and how they will go into the tabernacle and on what days they will go into the tabernacle and how to build the Ark of the Covenant and that the Ten Commandments and Will be, will be kept, a copy of the Ten Commandments kept in the Ark and, and very meticulous directions on what the Ark of the Covenant will look like and how the high priest will only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and how he'll splatter blood on, on the mercy seat. And you get the impression that God really means business about how he is to be approached. It's instructive for us today. Perhaps in our culture, we've lost the sense of reverence and awe of God, the shaking the dust off your sandals before you approach, right? We approach God almost cavalierly. Remember, the fear of the Lord is beginning of, of wisdom. Now we get to Exodus 32. And I want us to focus in on verse 17 and 18. And in your Bibles, your Bible probably has indented verse 18. We see some head nods if you have your Bible in front of you. Almost like it's poetry. It's, it's tabbed in. It should stand out on your, on your page. So Moses is up on the mountain with the Ten Commandments. He's with Joshua, his protege. Joshua, a young man, hears noise down in the camp. Some kind of shouting, some kind of singing. And being a young man, he assumes it's the sounds of war. Because that's what young men think, right? You've raised boys. They're always thinking about fighting and war and guns and... And what would happen in battle in those days, would there, there would be songs of shouting and praise when you, when you go into battle. There would be songs of praise when you won a battle. There would be songs of lament when you lost a battle. And he can't quite determine which one of those songs he's hearing. And so he says, Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But he, Moses, said, It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, or it is not the sound of shouting for victory in the ESV, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. Interesting, in the Hebrew, the word for noise, shouting, and singing are all the same word. Generically, it would just be translated as singing. We know what was going on down there because the Bible tells us they were worshiping the golden calf. And as Nathan taught us last week, the people rose up to play. And that's euphemistic for uh, gross, orgiastic sexual immorality going on around the golden calf as an act of worship. 
as an act of worship. God has already revealed to Moses and told Moses what is going on down there. And so Moses has to tell Joshua that is not the sound of triumph or the singing of lament. It is the sound of singing when people rise up to play. Commenting on this passage, Francis Schaeffer said, some things are more devastating than war. So, well, what could be worse than war? War is hell. I've never seen a war up close. So I would never trivialize how devastating war is. But I would have to agree with Francis Schaeffer because the Bible agrees that there is something more devastating than war. Making war against God. Making war against God. Creating a false God, which isn't a real God at all. Right? Nathan read from the Psalms, that psalm that says, and they made a golden calf, the image of an ox that eats grass. How could this be your God? How could this be the God that saved you out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea and brought the ten plagues? Calves, we kill calves and eat them as steak. It's not your God. And any idol is really an opportunity for us to play the role of God. The the calf can't speak, so any commands you're getting from the golden calf are your own commands. And when the golden calf tells you how he wants to be worshipped, it is you telling yourself how your idol wants to be worshipped. And, hey... Lucky me, my idol wants to be worshipped exactly the way my sinful desires want to act. How convenient. What a coinkydink, right? What a coincidence. (laughs) This God wants to be worshipped by the people rising up to play. Idolatry then leads to lawlessness. In fact, idolatry is lawlessness. And it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. This was an act of judgment. Act of judgment. Our benevolent God who delivered us from Egypt, delivered us from slavery, parted the Red Sea, brought us out here, has fed us, given us water, You're not deserving of his law. You don't have a heart bent towards wanting his law or wanting to keep his law. So this was an act of judgment. I believe that in our own culture, the removal of God's law from our society is an the same act of judgment. Same act of judgment. We have become a a people, a culture, not worthy of God's law. When God hands us over to our own appetites, you want a world without God's law? Shatter the Ten Commandments. Shatter God's law. I'll let you live in a world without God's law, and we'll see how you like it. Philosophically, that's what's going on. Actually, in verse 20, God has Moses ground up the golden calf, scatter it over the surface of the water, and make the sons of Israel drink it. You want your lawlessness? Here. Choke on it. You think this is your God and it can save you? We'll grind up your God into a powder and you can eat your God. Now what's going to happen in a couple days? A very poignant object lesson of just how worthless their golden God really is. I'll let you connect the dots. 
whether that gold causes you to vomit up your golden calf or whether it passes through your system, I'm sure there were a lot of tummy aches in Israel for the next few days. And then the ridiculousness of this precious metal shining on the ground all around you as it passes through your system. What a vivid and poignant lesson for us all to learn how powerless our idols of our heart are to deliver us from sin, to bring us happiness and fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. Sometimes God allows us to eat our golden calf, and I'm thankful that He does. Whether it's you left your job for a higher paying job with more prestige and it was really just an idol and you got that job and now you're miserable. Anyone live that out? I I have. Not here at the church. (laughs) Pre-pastor. Or perhaps the, the man who leaves his his wife and kids for another because he thinks that will bring happiness and then the misery that comes from that. In small ways, too, I was telling my kids, because you have to take these lessons and bring it down to life where they're living. The summer between my 7th and 8th grade year, now that school is starting, I went through 7th grade wearing the most uncool clothing imaginable. In, in my eyes. And I thought, you know, I was a pretty cool kid in sixth grade, but in seventh grade, all the elementary schools converge into one school, and I kind of got lost in the shuffle, and I thought the problem was the clothes. And the affirmation and the attention I was yearning for my golden calf was cool clothes. And I cried and cajoled my parents into shelling out some money for some cool clothes. Now, my dad happened to be a manager of a local boutique shopping center. Instead of going to the major department stores where the actual fashions were unveiled, he took us to the local department store that was always about six months behind. Not not that bad, but it, it it was crazy skater apparel. Bold patterns, crazy bold patterns. Uh, shirts with no sleeves. Not a tank top, but kind of a muscle shirt. Remember the painter's cap with the flaps in the back? Am I dating myself here? Checkerboard vans. Yeah. And so I showed up the first day of school dressed like an idiot. And the fashion had changed to the 80s preppy look. Very conservative Bermuda shorts and the, the polo shirt with either the IZOD or the whore, the, the polo. And uh, I came home and I said, we have got to go back to the store. And I said, you took the tags off everything. And so I had to eat my golden calf all summer until winter hit so I could at least pull out my winter clothes. And uh, not only was I not accepted for my cool wardrobe, but I was ridiculed. I'm sure it wasn't that bad, but come on, in eighth grade, it just feels like everybody is staring at you and mocking you. So help, help your children to understand heart idolatry. They hear the story of the golden calf, and they're like, okay, got it. I'm not going to melt down my gold and make a calf and worship it. Folks, it's more insidious than that, Right? The golden calf is a picture of what's going on in our heart. Did it actually happen? Yes. True history, real history, pointing to a bigger spiritual truth. And it's not what is your golden calf in your life. It's what are the golden calves. We've got many cattle on the hill of our hearts. I want to talk then today about the law of God and and uh, it's going to take, take two sermons. But let's start with this. Laws are unavoidable. You need to understand this. Laws are unavoidable. And truth is inescapable. Law and truth go hand in hand. They're, they're outside of us. Man doesn't come up with truth. 
man does make laws, but there are laws that are outside of us that govern all of reality. There are laws of nature. You understand that? There's laws of nature. Most people accept that there are laws of nature. Very few people will foolishly say they don't believe in the laws of nature. You can say, I don't believe in gravity, but nobody lives that way. You can be bold in your assertion, but you're a coward in the way you live because you, you, it's gravity, right? Laws of logic, most people accept as well. Accept in the last 10, 20 years during the postmodern movement, the laws of logic were beginning to be questioned. Well, how could you question the laws of logic? What happened was they believed that since the Enlightenment started in the age of modernity, science would explain all of reality apart from God's revelation. And science would answer all of our questions and fix all of our problems. And science couldn't deliver. And so postmodernism crept in, which began to say that there are no answers to the questions, that just asking the questions is good. And just kind of sitting around sipping coffee and asking deep philosophical questions, but no answers. And that... If there was truth, it was unknowable. Now, as Nathan pointed out to us last week, the instant you say truth is unknowable, you've just made a truth statement. So it's absurd to say truth is unknowable. And so the postmodernists had to start attacking the laws of logic, and they even wrote books, long books, arguing against the laws of logic. Now, what did they use to make their argument? Logic. So you, you can't undermine the laws of logic, otherwise you can't have a meaningful discussion about anything. So there are some still hanging around that might not accept the laws of logic, but we seem to be moving out of postmodernism now um, in the arena of truth and, and logic. But we're still hanging on to postmodernism when it comes to the laws of morality. Because it's very convenient for the sinful heart to accept the lie that morality is subjective. That there's no such thing as an objective morality which governs all of us. This is where the battle is still being fought. Let me demonstrate by borrowing an exercise we we got from Sean McDowell at camp two weeks ago. I really love this. He was talking about um, truth and that there's two kinds of truth. There's true truth, which is a Francis Schaeferism. True truth, meaning objective truth, true for everybody because it's outside of us. And then there's subjective truth or opinion. And he did this really neat exercise where he said, let's talk about insulin and ice cream. Insulin is true truth. There's this component in your body that the pancreas releases when you eat ice cream or sugar to package up that sugar, process it through your body. Without insulin, what would happen? We'd get too much sugar in our system, which becomes toxic. Is that true for everybody? Or is that just somebody's opinion? That's insulin kind of truth. True truth. You can say, I don't believe in insulin. And as they start to remove your toes and then your feet and you lose your eyesight, you will eventually have to relent and say, yes, this insulin thing, maybe there's something to it. But if I said that the best flavor of ice cream at Baskin-Robbins is, is uh, peanut butter and chocolate, this is true truth, people, right? True truth. Unless you're beholden to another flavor. And now that's your true truth to you. And my true truth is my true truth, and your true truth is your true truth. And we live in this society that seems to be okay with this concept of truth. But those are just opinions. So he said, let's call that ice cream truth. 
So he said, I'm, I'm going to make a truth statement, and you respond, insulin or ice cream. So we don't normally do this from the pulpit, but why not? Let's make it interactive. I'll make a truth statement, and you say insulin or ice cream. You can't say both. So insulin or ice cream. All right. Pastor Brent is older than Pastor Nathan. That is insulin truth. Even if you don't know the answer, objectively speaking, one of us is is older. If I had said Nathan is older than Pastor Brent, what would you say? It's still insulin truth. See, we, we tricked you. Even though the, the truth statement was wrong, who is older is insulin. Just because you believe he's older than me can't make it true. Okay, so you, you get in the game now? Okay, we won't, we won't trick you anymore. By the way, I am older than Pastor Nathan. It says, it, yeah, it says on my birth certificate... Don't ask me to show it to you, though. Right. Let's not go there. Okay. Pastor Brent is taller than Pastor Nathan. It's hard, huh? Is it insulin or is it ice cream? We're about the same height, more or less. It doesn't matter, though. It's insulin truth. The ruler doesn't lie. Right. If you want to know, I tower over Pastor Nathan. So... Now, he can jump much higher than I can, but it's still insulin truth. It's not opinion. You may believe, he may believe with all his heart that he's taller. It can't change reality. I'm I'm taller, way taller people. Not that that matters. (laughs) Okay, let's try another one. Pastor Brent is cooler than Pastor Nathan. Oh, folks, that's insulin. Come on. Okay, you get it. Now, that's, that's ice cream truth, you know? It just depends on who you ask and what your definition of cool is. So, okay, how about this? Abortion is wrong. Oh, God. See, Andy, you train these people well. That is not ice cream truth. And Sean McDowell says when he does this exercise to a group of people, more than half the room says ice cream. Because they know, you know, they're like, well, that's, yes, that's our opinion, and that's what we believe. Because they've been taught by their culture that morality is opinion. That is insulin truth. And certainly, killing the unborn and selling their parts for profit has got to be wrong. I don't care what country you live in, what planet you're from. And as a culture, if we can't figure this out, We're in big trouble. I hope you've been following this story because it's not reported in the mainstream news. So this is where the battle is being fought. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. As Nathan talked about it, truth is like trying to hold a basketball underwater at the pool. And you can hold it down for a little while, but eventually it slips out of your hand and pops up and it hits you in the face. Truth has a funny way of hitting you in the face when you try to suppress it. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. The essence of sin is is lawlessness. That in our heart of hearts, we're lawbreakers. We don't want the law. We don't want God's law. Moses coming down from the mountain with God's law, and the people already rejected God's law. They had heard the Ten Commandments. You shall... I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. They make a golden calf. You shall not make a graven image. They make a graven image. They broke the first two commandments, first chance they got. 
which is where the start of all lawlessness begins. I've got to replace the lawgiver to take away the laws. If there's no lawgiver, then there's no laws and there's no judge. But we can't live without laws. Right? There's the irony. We don't want law, but we can't live without law. You can't go five seconds without law. How are you going to decide how to do anything? How are you going to decide if something's right or something's wrong? For a society that has rejected God's laws and wants freedom, we sure make a lot of laws. The the unbelievers, the unregenerate in our country, make more laws than anyone else. And then they expect you to live by their laws, or you're going to be in trouble. I'll sue you. I'll sick the government on you. They'll find your bakery, whatever. For people who are for tolerance and freedom, they sure want to make a lot of laws controlling. Paul said in Romans 2.14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, so you can't help it, instinctively you do the things of the law. Sean McDowell said, if you're ever talking to someone who says that there are no absolute laws, try cutting in front of them in line. The whole house of cards comes down. You can't do that. That's not right. Who says? Well, everyone knows that's not right to cut. Everyone knows? What does everyone know sound like? Insulin. Yes. You got it. That sounds like insulin truth to me. When they do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law, capital L, so they don't have the law of Moses, are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So they live as if there is an objective law informing their conscience. Either I'm breaking the law or I'm keeping the law. Either they're walking around with extreme guilt or they're walking around with extreme self-righteousness. What a great law keeper I am. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So they'll be without excuse. They'll say, well, I didn't have the law. I didn't have the Bible. I didn't know what was right and wrong. Yes, you do. You know what is right and wrong. The way you live your life testifies that there is some kind of law operating inside of you. You can ask people, why, why, why then do we have laws? And why do we need law enforcement? See, the unbelieving world says that people are naturally good. They're just uninformed. And so education will be our savior. If we just told people the right thing to do and modeled it for them, they would do it. And so let's scrap this archaic religion because that's the cause of all the ills in the world and replace it with a new religion that they say is not a religion, the religion of secular humanism. And they've got their own tabernacle, the university, and their own priests, the professors, and their own sacrificial system. It's called tuition. (laughs) And last time I checked, people are still breaking the law. If you have a a good discussion with someone over this, you can choose a law that you know is precious to them and then point out that other countries have opposite laws. So you might be having a cordial discussion about this issue of gay marriage and whether or not homosexual behavior is wrong. And they'd say, it's absolutely, it's not wrong. People are born that way. And we're glad that we've fixed the law and now we've made it right. 
What about Muslims? Sharia law says those folks who practice homosexually ought to be killed. And they are killing them. Now this creates a dilemma for those who are multicultural and tolerant. You're not allowed in our culture to say anything negatively about Islam. And you're certainly not allowed to say anything negatively about sexual immorality. But Islam certainly has plenty to say about sexual immorality. So, people who claim there's no objective moral law find themselves in a conundrum. You just can't live truly believing that. As Christians, we understand that until God changes your heart, the unregenerate, the unregenerate man cannot obey the law or restrain the flesh. Now, we might obey the law temporarily and in certain cases for fear of punishment or hope of reward, right? That's how you get your, your kids when they're unregenerate to obey. Sticks and carrots. But you're praying all along that God will change their heart. They'll become born again and that they will begin to love the law. Love obeying the law because the lawgiver is good. And you, you want to transfer that love they have of you as their lawgiver to the real lawgiver, their, their God. You hope you get to a place with your kids where they seek out your wisdom and your laws, so to speak, because they love you and respect you, not because they're afraid of punishment or they're seeking some kind of temporary reward. Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, what couldn't the law do, Paul? Weak as it was through the flesh, God did. What the law couldn't do, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh... And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, us being those who are regenerate now, those who us are saved. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They set their minds on rising up and playing at the foot of the golden calf. But those who are according to the Spirit... They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. God's done that work in them. Now those, even after you're regenerate, we understand those two natures compete. You, you and I still have residual flesh sin nature in us. And Paul talks about that battle um, in Romans 7. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. There, there you have it, right there. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It will not place itself under the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, what does this look like? Remember in Romans 1, we keep going back to this passage. It's such a pivotal passage in the New Testament. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, like a golden calf. But again, remember, the golden calf isn't really the God they're worshiping. It's themselves they're worshiping. But walking around saying, I'm my own God, isn't going to get you very far in life with others. So we conceal it with our idols. Even sometimes Christians recreate the true God in their own image, and then they say things about God that we ought to know from the Scriptures aren't true. Well, I think God is like this, and I think God would allow for this. 
It is really the only way that we can see evangelicals in our church today so quickly aligning themselves with the culture and throwing out very clear teachings in the Bible and replacing them with, well, God's a God of love. If people were made that way, why would God forbid them to do those things? And on they go. They've created a new God in their image. Since I'm not a judgmental person and I don't want to be called a bigot or a homophobe, I need to recreate a God in my image. And so again, don't think that idolatry is so obvious that people are walking around with golden calves. Our, our idols, they hide. And sometimes they take the form of our own God by our own doing. Now we have a problem. You have this wing of the evangelical church saying, I worship the God of the Bible, and this wing says, so do we. But my God of the Bible is saying this truth and this law. Well, my God of the Bible is saying this truth and this law. Somebody's got the wrong God. Or they're misinterpreting what God is saying. But they certainly can't both be right because God's truth and God's law is not ice cream. It's insulin. So the can't we all just get along and find some mushy middle ground? No, sorry. I'm all for unity, but not for destroying God's truth. Because when God's truth is destroyed, there's no unity at all. Why did they create these idols? Nathan explained it to us last week. So that, you know, postmodernism, that's so ridiculous. Who would make up such a philosophy and who would fall for such a thing? People who want to rise up and play. Right? You know it's wrong, so you need to justify your immoral behavior and your pride and your unholy desires by convincing yourself that God is good with these things. Or, for the atheist, that there's no God at all, and so we can make up our own laws. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, follow these bullets here. Remember the old songs, follow the bouncing ball. Follow the bullet points and you'll understand the flow of this logic. Man doesn't want God's laws because he thinks that they are keeping him from happiness and fulfillment. Man doesn't want God's laws because he thinks that they will keep him from happiness and fulfillment. That's at the root of the desire to break God's laws, or replace God's laws. The problem is God's law is there, informing our conscience and telling us the very thing we want to do is, is wrong. So, man exchanges the truth for a lie and replaces God with a false God, which we keep saying is really just man in disguise. So now I don't have God's law inhibiting me from doing the things that I want to do in the flesh. Now I have a problem. I'm free from the law, but I soon discover that I can't live without laws. I can't live in a society without laws. I can't live in a family without laws. I can't have interpersonal relationships without laws. You know, there's just certain things we know socially you just don't do. And because I want to be my own God, I want to manipulate and control the relationships I'm in, so I begin to make my own set of laws and expect other people to keep my laws, even if I haven't told them what they are. The one law we, we tend to make for everybody is, law number one, your job is to make me happy at all costs. Right? Oh, come on, people. This is what's going on in, in, in our flesh. Your job is to make me, make me happy. And you're not making me happy right now. Man discovers that he can't live without law, so man makes new laws, and then man uses all kinds of power and force 
to force others to live by these new laws. And sometimes it's brute strength. And Francis Schaeffer said, this is where we're going after postmodernism is fascism. We can't live in this anarchy, this everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. I mean, what's going to happen now that the Pandora's box is open, the, the, the dam's broken open? Everyone can go to the Supreme Court now and redefine anything and use the same argument the Supreme Court used to redefine marriage. Well, why are we stopping there? Why can't marriage be anything I want it to be by that logic? And so, after a while, you can't live without laws, and then we'll bring in some kind of fascism. Well, we're going to need some new laws here, and we'll give the government the power to enforce those laws. But we do this in our interpersonal relationships, too. Instead of using brute strength, we might use manipulation, tears, guilt trip. We've got this law and people are breaking it, and so they must pay. And once people start keeping my laws, all will be good. That's ice cream, thank you. The law, though, is necessary. It just can't save us. So first and foremost, today, and then next week I'll finish, but today the take-home is the law is good, but it can't save. And there's this misunderstanding in Christianity today that the Old Testament law was bad, and Jesus came to replace it with something good. The, the law was good, is good, will always be good. It's insulin, not ice cream. The Old Testament saints were saved by keeping the law, were saved by grace. No, no. They couldn't keep the law. They were saved by grace as well. When did they get the law? Before God saved them out of Egypt or after God saved them out of Egypt? After God saved them out of Egypt. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Paul seems like he has a really high view of the law here. The law will stop up every mouth No one will have an excuse when they stand before God. And then, right after the semicolon, he says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. We'll all be found guilty according to the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what the law is good for. It tells us what's right and wrong, and then tells us we're not good at keeping the law. It shows us that we're lawbreakers. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the law being the Torah, the prophets, euphemistic for the writings after the Torah in the Old Testament. This was taught in the Old Testament, Paul's saying. This is taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament wasn't teaching that you get to heaven by keeping the law perfectly. Well, you can, but none of us can get there by that route. So Jesus came as a man and perfectly obeyed the law in our place so his righteousness could be imputed to us by faith. So when we stand before God, if we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, he will treat us as if we have kept the law perfectly. Amen. I hope nobody's leaving today putting any faith in their own good works. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? Lawlessness. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So the question then is, is the law of Moses bad? Because this is what the world's going to tell you. They're going to mock the law of Moses. They're going to go to Leviticus and find one of those obscure laws like mixing fabrics or stoning rebellious children to death 
And they're going to go, do you do that? You're wearing polyester and wool, cotton. You're a lawbreaker. How will you answer that? Do you stone your rebellious children to death? Well, no, in our culture, rebellious children stone themselves to death. Right? Ha. Play on words. You're like, ah, oh, well, yeah, that's an uncomfortable lie. I don't know what to do with that one. That's not a good testimony to the world. You need to be ready for an, with an answer for the hope that is within you. And that includes being able to explain the beauty of the Mosaic Law and how it relates to Christians today. So you need to come back next week and we'll go through this together so that we will, we will be equipped. In the meantime, if somebody has these questions for you and you don't know the answer, you just say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that, but I know the Bible has good answers. And so let me study that and I will get back to you. You can say that. You don't have to get frustrated and, oh no, i got to abandon the faith because some scoffing scoffer asked a question I didn't know the answer to. So we'll reconvene next week. And if you go on vacation next week, I'll probably touch on this on the last Sunday of the month too. So let's, um, let me pray and dismiss us. Father God, thank you for the law. Your law. Without the laws of nature, we would this universe would spin out of control. And without the laws of morality, our hearts would spin out of control. Help us to understand, Lord, that because we were born into sin, we were lawbreakers by nature. And because of that, children of wrath. But thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who not only took that wrath on himself, but perfectly obeyed the law in our place, so that by faith we may be called righteous in your sight. Lord, help us this week to recognize where we make our own laws. And forgive us for that. May we turn from that kind of idolatry and embrace you and you alone as Savior. As we talk to people and disciple people and counsel even our own children, that we would always be pointing to you as the source of laws and the source of grace and not ourselves as the source of law and the source of grace. Lord, I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.